Hot Springs Village Inside Out is a closer look at the greatness of Hot Springs Village, Arkansas and the surrounding areas. People, places, experiences. Hot Springs Village is one of the most beautiful places on earth. Join me, Randy Cantrell, and my co-host, Dennis Simpson, as we engage in weekly conversations to explore Hot Springs Village Inside Out. Today's show is brought to you by Central Arkansas's favorite radio station, KVRE. Find them on the dial at 92.9 FM. Stream them live at kvre.com. Remax of Hot Springs Village, the award-winning Remax of Hot Springs Village is the largest real estate office inside the village with over 30 full-time agents and support staff. Visit them to learn more about this beautiful place to solve your real estate needs. Call them today at 1-800-364-9007 or find them online at explorehsv.com. They are Remax of Hot Springs Village at 1-800-364-9007 or online at explorehsv.com. The day of the bombing after I found out my grandchildren had been killed, we went home and I turned on the TV and I was watching the TV and one of the surviving children's parents was there in the hospital room with him and he was giving testimony. He said, you know, this is so wonderful. Uh, I just prayed and asked God for a little boy to hold him. God answered my prayer and here's my boy. Wow. How do you think my family felt? We prayed and asked God for a little boy to hold and we lost both of them. And that is how we start this episode. I'm Dennis Simpson. He's Randy Cantrell. And we have Miss Kathy Sanders. Kathy, it has been months we've been trying to book you on this show. You are a author. You are a well-known personality on television and radio. You have told a story repeatedly. And the story is not what we might make it sound like right then. It's not about death and disaster. It's actually about forgiveness. And I can't wait to hear the rest of the story. Set us up, start us. How did it go? What happened? Well, first of all, let me give you a little bit of background. My daughter was a young mother, 23 years old. She lived at home with her children. My grandchildren were more than grandchildren. They had the bedroom next to mine. Uh, We co-parented those children. Uh, And Edie and I worked together downtown and we dropped the kids off at the daycare. Edie had stayed home on Monday and Tuesday before the bombing on Wednesday. And uh, she had been sick and she had kept the boys home with her. So she got to spend those two days with them. But she was going to stay home on Wednesday as well. But on Tuesday night, she got a call from a coworker that said, uh, oh, Edie, you've got to come to work tomorrow. We're having the office birthday party for the people that had their birthday in the month of April. And it was Edie and one other person. And she said, I baked you a cake. You've got to come to work. So we dropped the boys off that morning. And um, went on to our office. I'll never forget that morning. I'll I'll never forget that morning. Uh, They sat at the the counter in the kitchen and they ate their little breakfast. I... I'll never forget it. But now they were how old, Kathy? They were two and three years old. Chase was about three weeks from his fourth birthday. And this was Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. That's right, the Oklahoma City bombing. And we dropped the kids off. We went on to our office. I'm on the fifth floor. Edie's on the third. I'm sitting there, and I hear this horrific roar and the building shook. I had no idea what it was, but I knew that it was really bad. Whatever it was, it was bad. I grabbed my purse and I ran down two flights of stairs to my daughter's office. And when I opened the door, there were people were all lined up and they were looking out the windows trying to figure out what happened. Someone hung up the phone and said, made the announcement, hey, they just blew up the bank building. And I said, Edie, let's go see. So we ran down three more flights of stairs and we went out the front doors of our building. And we were three blocks from the Murrah. And when we went outside, there were big sheets of plate glass falling down all around us. There was not one car one moving in the street. 
Edie looked up the street to see where the uh, bank was, and the bank was intact. So she turned and was going to run and go back inside the building where it was safe. And as she goes, and we're starting to go back inside, I look up the street and I said, Edie, I saw the smoke rising from the Murrah, and I said, Edie, the babies. We take off running as fast as we can. And when we get to the south side of the Murrah building, I'm saying, Edie, wait up, wait up. And we stop and we're kind of surveying the damage. The building was intact on the south side. The windows were blown out and the blinds were kind of waving in the flapping in the wind, but the building was intact. And as we're standing there trying to figure out what happened and we're trying to catch our breath, we hear boom, boom, boom. And we see this new cloud of black billowing smoke. We take off running to the north side of the building. And when we get to the north side of the building and we turn where the daycare once was, was nothing but a pancake pile of rubble. My daughter fell to her knees and said, my babies, my babies. And it was the first time in my daughter's life that she had a problem that her mother wasn't going to be able to fix. I turned. We didn't have enough sense to go back to the south side of the building and get in that stairwell and go up. We were trying to climb the rubble on the north side of the building because that's where the kids were. We had just dropped them off there. Uh, you know, less than an hour ago. So I'll never forget, it was a jacketed ATF agent that stopped us. And I'm thinking, ATF, ATF, who is that? Does he have the authority to keep me out of this building? And then the second bomb threat came. That morning, there was a training device that was in the basement of the building that had been used by the ATF that uh, had fallen the ninth floor floors into the basement and when it was discovered they thought it was a real bomb so everybody's yelling get back get back get back and they stampede away from the building well we didn't want to leave we want to find their children we're we're trying to find it and we were physically forced to leave and so as we left the building uh, we were told go to the uh children's hospital that's where the children will be taken when they're removed from the building we went to the hospital and we began to wait my son was an off-duty police officer and he had seen his mother and his sister on the news coverage he he was watching the news coverage of the bombing and he knew something was bad and came down and said mama don't worry i'm going to find the boys and so he left and when he came back, I'm sitting in the emergency room. He goes, Mama, where's Colton wearing little green shorts and little white shirt? I said, yes, son, yes, that's Colton. And I could tell by his countenance that something was horribly wrong. And I said, what is it, son? What is it? I said, is the baby gone? Is the baby gone? And he said, no, Mama, Colton's gone. He held me for a few minutes, and then he sat me in a chair, and he said, Mama, where where is Edie? I've got to tell her. I said, son, she's around in the chaplain's office. And in a few minutes, I heard a blood-curdling scream, and I knew my son had found my daughter. And that's, uh, he, he left again that day, and he said, my mom would go find Chase, my oldest grandson. And he did find Chase. He found him toe-tagged in the back of a refrigerated truck being used for a makeshift morgue. We found out later from the uh, rescue worker, went in to try to find someone that he could save in the rubble, and he found my youngest grandson in the rubble. He dug him out, and he was holding him. He said he was going to apply CPR, try to do something to help him, but he realized he had been gutted by a blast shard, and he died in his arms. So when the second bomb threat came, he left him on a bench by the side of the rubble and covered him with a sheet. And that's where my son found him. At this point, this sounds like, it, it really does. It sounds like a movie. It sounds like it's written to be as tragic as could possibly happen. And it is. I mean, it's not written that way, but oh my goodness, Kathy, what? I know you're a woman of faith, 
What do you say? What do you think? What do you do? Well, I didn't know what to do. You know, I grew up in a Christian home, and I'm Christian. Uh, but I have to tell you, my value system was shaken. When I turned on the TV and I saw that the man holding his son, and he said, I prayed and asked God for a boy to hold, and here's my son. He answered my prayer, and I'm thinking, God, why didn't you answer my prayer? I watched my husband become so angry over the bombing. He was angry at uh, the federal government because he didn't believe we were being given the truth about the bombing. We believed there were other people involved. He was mad at Timothy McVeigh for blowing up the building, and he was mad at God because he didn't answer our prayer. It was the first time in my life I ever considered suicide. And I thought, you know, I don't know how I'm going to live in a world filled with this much pain. I just want to die. But I knew I couldn't do that to my daughter and to my husband. And I prayed and I said, God, you know, you're going to have to help me. I can't go there. If you're out there, Lord, help me. I'm just, I need your help. And I, I began to trust God. I, I, I went to, to him in prayer. It was a rough time, though, Dennis. It was a really rough time. Uh, we investigated the bombing. You know, shortly after the bombing, it's the largest manhunt in American history is going on for John Doe number two. And within a few days, the FBI calls off the manhunt and said, you know what? It was all a mistake. There was no John Doe number two. Well, there were 22 eyewitnesses that saw John Doe number two downtown the morning of the bombing, and not one eyewitness saw him alone. That concerned us. Sure. Uh, we had a dinner at our home for the surviving children, uh, or for the parents of the children that were killed in the daycare. I'm sorry. And it was 19 families that had lost their children. I mean, it was the saddest of times. And one of the young mothers at this dinner was telling us, you know, when I dropped my son off that morning, she saw the bomb squad downtown. It's like, ah, how do you know? How do you know it was the bomb squad? And she said they had big blue letters on their jacket. Well, the next morning, my husband went down to the fire station and he asked the fire chief, did you all have prior warning? Was there a bomb squad downtown? The, uh, before the bomb went off, the fire chief said, oh, absolutely not. We, we did not. Uh, then we found an article in the paper from the paper called the Canola Watchman. Someone did an interview with this office full of people that was in the federal building uh, at the post office across the street from the federal building. And they were watching in the alleyway. And they said, wonder what the bomb squad's doing down here. The joke of the office was, well, I don't know. I guess we'll find out soon enough, meaning when the bomb went off, just being trite. And they did find out. So when they were presented with the information, hey, this whole office full of people have been watching the bomb squad downtown. Uh, what's the deal? Well, the chief then calls a press conference and he makes the announcement, you know what? I made a mistake. Our bomb squad was downtown the morning of the bombing, but it was just our guys running routine errands and they stopped to get a cup of coffee. But they were not only call, pulling the, uh, having the bomb disposal unit truck there, they were had the trailer with the bomb disposal unit on the back. There were reports of bomb sniffing dogs downtown. This stuff, uh, it was killing my husband because he just, uh, no faith in the government, uh, you know, he had no faith in God at that time. But I knew if I was going to make it, I was going to have to trust God. But I began to investigate with my husband just as kind of something to do. And we thought, well, you know what? If you want to point the finger at someone else uh, about Stephen Jones, Timothy McVeigh's attorney, if you want to point the finger at someone else, we'll help you. Because we knew there were other people involved. And when I did that, I began to get all sorts of documents that McVeigh's investigators would turn over things to me. I got McVeigh's telephone records, 
He called a place called Elohim City the week before the bombing, two minutes after calling the Ryder Truck Rental Company. And that was at Elohim City. Now, you would think that that would be an important phone call. The FBI would want to know who McVeigh was calling, what the call was about. They interviewed thousands of people in regard to Timothy McVeigh, including his third grade school teacher, but they didn't interview Andreas Strassmeyer, the man McVeigh was calling there. This stuff just added uh, fuel to the fire, so, so to speak. I could keep going all day about the inconsistencies and why we began to investigate. Uh, now, if, if I can, well, what's the name of your book again? Now You See Me is the first book I wrote. And I'm sorry, okay. say that one more time. You broke up on just a little. Now You See Me. It, it's a, it was the first book I No, Now You See Me is the second book I wrote, my latest book. But my first book was After Oklahoma City, and it contained all these questions that we had. Hmm. In 2020, Dateline, some of the best journalists in America took our work very seriously, and they ran stories based on what we were doing. Unbelievable. Now, let, let me, let me, and, and for those that are listening, let's just from a high five mile view real quick. The, the, the stages of grief typically are shock, anger, denial, usually bargaining, and then acceptance. So it's shock, anger, denial, acceptance. I, I can't imagine. And, and for those of you that are listening, and I hope you're, you're getting something from this, the shock it can be big. It can be little, and it doesn't matter. You say, well, I got laid off. I got, it's still a shock. It's whatever. Maybe it's not your grandchildren perishing in a, in a terrible bombing, but it's the same structure. It's the same organization. How long, how long is not even a fair question. Did you feel yourself going between those stages, the shock, the anger, the denial, the acceptance? Did, did you, there wasn't anybody waving a flag going, okay, today it's time to be angry. No, I, grief is a long process. I, I kind of best describe it. Do you think if there's, if you lost your eyesight today, would there ever be a day that you'd wake up in the morning and you wouldn't mourn the fact you couldn't see the beautiful sun rising? You would. You're left with this new life that you hadn't chosen and that you didn't want. But there were still plenty of good things to live for, just like for a blind person. And that's the best way I know how to describe it. But uh, I did, it did concern me that there were so many unanswered questions. And uh, within a year, and like I said, we were on Dateline 2020, hard copy. I, that we had newspapers from around the world, even the New York Times and the BBC, they were coming forth to us and running these stories. My husband was so angry, he was 47 years old, uh, that one day he came in and he had been sick. He'd been popping uh, tums and stuff, uh, just an upset stomach. And uh, he came in, I could tell something's wrong. I said, what's wrong? And he goes, well, I have blood in my urine. Well, we took him to the doctor and the doctor looked at him and he said, how long has he been yellow? I didn't even notice that he was yellow. His eyes were yellow. We went to sleep every night crying. I, I, I didn't notice the, the, the yellow eyes. It wound up that he had pancreatic cancer. And I spent the next year taking care of him. And he died uh, less than two years after the bombing. And I know it was the stress, the, the anger and the hate that he harbored in his heart. You know, uh, harboring bitterness and anger in your heart is like uh, drinking poison and expecting the enemy to die. You know, it, it killed him as, as far as I'm concerned. And it got him, the death certificate said pancreatic cancer, but I'm not so sure he would have had that if he hadn't have, uh, been so angry and hateful for so long. Yes. Kathy was seeing what that did to him. Was that some impetus for you to try to figure out a way to turn a page, to write a new chapter, to try to forgive? No, 
uh, I never, I never was as angry as he was. I was too devastated. I was too hurt. I, uh, but I did reach out to God and I said, God, you're going to have to help me. And shortly after he died, uh, I went to, I moved to Denver to attend Terry Nichols' trial. I didn't get to attend Tim McVeigh's trial because. Uh, my husband was dying during that time, but I still wanted these questions. I still continue to investigate uh, because I thought I owed it to Chase and Colton and Glenn because I felt like this bombing took all their lives. So the, the turning point, Randy, came when I, I went to the trial and the judge uh, called a recess and I went out in the hall and I saw a little lady in the hallway with a long, dark coat on, uh, elderly woman with a kind of a, her hair. She looked like the Aunt B persona off of the Andy Griffith show. And I could tell people were talking about her, but not to her. And then it dawned on me, oh my God, that's Terry Nichols' mother. And I thought, God, I wonder how she must be like. So I went over to her and I began to introduce myself and she said, I, she began to cry and she said, I know who you are, I've seen you on TV. And I put my arms around her and I said, I just want you to know how sorry I am for your family. And we had an instant connection. And after 2020 did this show uh, that we helped them with about pointing the finger at others, what the bomb squad's doing down there, and who was McVeigh calling at Elohim City. Um, some of the family members were banned together with the local news, and they were mad because they thought we were going to get McVeigh and Nichols off. And, and it was really ugly. They were really mad. So when I went to the trial, I kind of felt like a pariah. And maybe I was just projecting what they thought of me, but it's like I didn't feel welcome. I, I was just nervous to be around them because I knew I see them on TV and I knew how mad they were. So Terry's mother, Joyce, and I had a bond. So I began to sit with her. So I was sitting with Terry Nichols' family instead of the families of those that were killed. We began to eat lunch together. And it wasn't long before Terry Nichols, the bomber, became my friend Joyce's son, who was kind of changing for me. Toward the end of the trial, I told Joyce and Terry's sister Susie, I said, you know, if Terry wants to save himself, he needs to testify. And they had, they told Terry that. Oh, and, and during this time, I'm sitting with his mother. After several days, there was a period of time went by, uh, Terry and I, our eyes met. And that hadn't happened at McVeigh's uh, trials and hearings that I was that I got to go to. He was so cocky. When he had entered the room, his team would pat him on the back and treat him like a movie star. Terry Nichols, he never looked up. He stayed there. He was very modest. He was very, I, I think, ashamed. He, he was a humble man. So in the courtroom one day, our eyes met. And I'm looking at him in the eye, and he's looking at me. I'm sitting next to his mother. I didn't know what to do, so I mouthed, oh, and he, he looked at me, and he said, oh. And that was a beginning. Uh, every day after that, we would, sometime during the course of the day, we would acknowledge each other with a nod, just, just a nod. So toward the end of the trial, I'm telling his mother and sister he needs to testify if he wants to save himself. And uh, they came back and told me, well, Terry said uh, that his lawyers wouldn't let him testify. But he said, he told them, you have her write down her questions and I'll answer, I'll answer all the questions that she has. And by this time, Joyce and Susie are my friends, and they're telling me that. Susie's telling me that, and I'm saying, 
Susie, don't ever have your brother write anything down. You know, uh, which astonished even me. I didn't know why I did that. Um, so at the end of the trial, the jury uh, couldn't come to a decision because they wanted to know, they knew Terry Nichols was guilty, but they didn't know how guilty. They wanted to know who the men were that had that were seen with McVeigh and Nichols out at Gary Lake where they built the bomb. The defense in, in the uh, prosecution, they agreed that the, the bomb was built at Gary Lake. There were witnesses that saw the bomb built there. They wanted to know who were the men seen that were coming and going from Timothy McVeigh's room at the Dreamland? Because McVeigh drove the bomb truck from the Dreamland straight to the Alpha P. Murrah building. The Chinese delivery guy said he gave the Chinese food to, to some men that wasn't McVeigh and there were other men in the room. The lady that owned the motel said there were other people coming and going from there, even the maid. So the jury was conflicted in, on the sentencing phase, and they didn't know what they were going to do. And Michael Tiger, who was Terry's attorney, uh, he summons me. He sends someone to find me, takes me up the back stairs of the courthouse, and, and, and invites me to come in. I go into this room and there's the whole defense team sitting around this big conference table. And it, it was nice that they brought me in the back way so the families don't have to see me going up there. I mean, that would have really been the kiss of death. So I'm up there and Michael's saying, I, I suppose you wonder why I've invited you there. And I said, yeah, I do. And he goes, well, we're at the sentencing phase. And he goes, I've, called, uh, I want to ask you, would you be willing to ask the court to spare Nichols' life? And I began to cry, and I said, you know, I lost my children, my grandchildren. I lost my husband. These people already hate me, and now you want me to get up on the stand and ask to spare his life? And he, he said, yeah. And I'm thinking, well, who knows more about the bombing than the bomber? And I looked at Mr. Tiger and I said, sir, you get me in to see Terry Nichols and, and have him answer my questions and I'll do it. And he said, okay, I'll have it done. I'll do it. He leaves and then... Uh, I don't remember if it was a few hours later or the next morning, the judge declared the jury hung because they couldn't make a decision. Well, once he declared the jury hung, the death sentence was off the table for Terry Nichols. So he didn't, the lawyer didn't need me anymore. So I never got that meeting with Terry Nichols. So the trial was over. I went back home. I'm home for a few days. I go to my mailbox and pull out my mail, and there is a letter. Uh, I see the return address is Terry Nichols. And now he's at the county jail in Oklahoma City. Because since the feds didn't execute him, Oklahoma had a backup plan, and they brought him back to stand trial. Because Nichols and McVeigh were only charged with the death of, I believe it was eight federal agents. The other 163 people, they weren't charged any for their deaths. It was just, it was a federal trial against those federal agents. So Oklahoma brought him back to charge him with the murders of the 165 other people. So there I see Terry Nichols, county jail, and I'm thinking, oh my God, I wonder what he wants. And I'm thinking, I'm not looking for a pen pal. And if I was, it wouldn't be the Oklahoma City bomber. And then I thought about that. And I thought, well, who knows more about the bombing than Terry Nichols? And at that point in my life, Dennis, I was willing to dance with the devil to get to the truth. Yeah, I'm sorry. Say that again. You were what? 
at that point in my life, I was willing to dance with the devil to get to the truth. Yeah. yeah. So I answered Terry's letter. And he was thanking me for befriending his family and how much it meant to his mother and his sister. That that began a correspondence. And after several letters, he said, if you'll send me your phone number, I'll call you. So I sent him my phone number and he called me. And it was the oddest thing. That's back when we used to have those little caller ID things attached to our phone, you know. I'm waiting for that call for several days, and then I see it's the county jail. And it was so strange because before I picked up the phone, I'm going, hello, hello, trying to check my voice like you do if you're going to answer the phone and you're sleepy, but you don't want to sound sleepy, so you kind of clear it up. I'm going, hello, hello. And then it's a taped recording that said, you have an incoming call from, and then it was Terry's voice. Well, Terry and I began to talk on the phone. And he began to call me quite a bit, a lot during that time. And then one day he said, well, if I talk to my lawyer, would you come see me? And I said, yeah, I'd like that. Yeah, I'll do that. And so he gets back to me, well, my lawyer wants to talk to you. I said, okay. So I call his lawyer and he said, I just want to know. Why? Why do you want to talk to Terry Nichols? And I said, well, I had several reasons. I said, one of the things, uh, I became friends with his mom and his sister at the trial. And Terry Nichols Obama became my friend Joyce's son. And now I've communicated with him a lot. And I think I'm getting to know pretty I think I knew Terry Nichols as well as just about anybody, I'd say. And and we didn't talk about the bombing. We talked around the bombing. And um, he said, well, as long as you don't don't ask him any questions about the bombing, uh, that you can go. Uh, I'll take you to see him. Well, when I married my husband, Glenn, I had kept my father's name, my maiden name. And... uh, so I was very happy that when I went in to sign in with Terry's lawyer, that my name was Kathy Graham, because I didn't want it to be a media event. I didn't want people to know that I was up there visiting. So I visited with him several times. And he told me, he said, Kathy, when I'm no longer under the threat of the death penalty, I'm going to tell you everything. And during the course of this time, uh, Timothy McVeigh was executed. That was four years after the bombing. And Terry Nichols' ex-wife, Lana Padilla, the mother of Terry's son, Josh, who the FBI thought was uh, John Doe number two for a while. He was a great big 12-year-old. So I hadn't seen him since the trial. It had been four years. But uh, Lana called me and she said, you know, we're coming to Oklahoma City. Uh, Josh hadn't seen his dad in four years and he's having a lot of trouble. And I said, well, Lana, why, you can stay with me. Why don't you come to my home? And she goes, oh, I don't, I don't know that Josh would feel comfortable doing that. And I said, well, just come and by, have dinner. And if he's not, I certainly understand. So that evening, there comes a knock on the door and I go to the door and I answer it. And there's Lana Padilla, and there's Josh. But instead of being a chubby, shorter version of this 12-year-old, he's a tall, big, good-looking kid. I look up at him because he's taller than me, and I what do you say? I said, well, I knew you were coming, so I baked a cake. And he laughed. We had dinner. We stayed up into the wee hours of the night, and Josh told me how to school. The kids had nicknamed him Bomber and how he would get randomly beat up. And he was just having all sorts of trouble and he uh, dropped out of school. They wound up staying with me for four days. I never told my neighbors, I didn't tell my family that Terry Nichols' son and his ex-wife were at my house. How could I expect anyone to understand what I didn't really understand myself? And I didn't leave the house because I didn't wanna be seen out with them. And uh, 
they probably just thought I was being gracious and I was gracious, but that wasn't the reason we didn't, that I didn't leave the house. And so um, they stayed four days. And on the last day, Lana and Josh are beginning to leave and they're getting in the car and Josh looks at me and he's got tears in his eyes and he jumps out of the car uh, and he grabs me and he, uh, oh, I'm sorry. I'm ahead of myself. I'm going to back up a bit on this. Can you edit it? No, just go ahead. Go ahead. No, you're fine. Okay. So they wound up staying four days with me. And on, on the last day, Josh said, will you take me to the Oklahoma City Memorial? And I thought, oh, Lord, I, I don't want him to see me. But how could I tell Josh no, not after what he had been through? And so I took him to the memorial, and nobody recognized us. Uh, Josh didn't even look like Josh anymore. He'd grown up so. But I'll tell you, when I stood at the chairs, number 51 and number 52, with my arm around the bomber's son, I knew God had done a work in my life. And then later that day, when Josh got ready to leave, he goes to get in the car and he jumps back out and he puts his arms around me. And he says, you are the nicest lady I ever met. And Lana gets out of the car and we're doing a group hug. And she said, Kathy, thank you for giving Josh some good memories of Oklahoma. Uh, she said, last time we were here, we were being heckled. And, uh, you know, I knew, I knew I was doing something really right. And I came to the place in my life. It was a process. Forgiveness for me was a process. I, you don't just, it's kind of like learning to be blind. I, it's a process to learn to cope through that world. And I've been going through it for a long time. And I knew something had changed when I had that my arm around Josh Nichols uh, at Chase and Colton's chair. And so there, was, there wasn't, there wasn't a day when you went, okay, I'm not mad about this anymore. You can't flip the switch. It, it, for me, it, I didn't flip the switch. It was a process. I turned it over a, myself. God help me. You're going to have to help me. This was another pivotal time in my life. And this was a few years, even after my meeting with Josh, I remember laying in my bed, and I was looking toward the ceiling and I was praying and I said, God, you know, I've read my Bible. And the, the Lord's prayer says, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And I said, God, I don't know how to do that. You're going to have to help me. Would you please send your Holy Spirit to intercede for me? And I will tell you, when I begin to pray for Terry Nichols, and Timothy McVeigh, it began to change my life. And I don't know what it did for them if it did anything. So let's recap. The forgiveness is not for them. It's for you. It's the biggest gift you can give yourself. That's right. Randy? Well, I'm, I'm thinking, Kathy, I... Uh, I I do a little bit of preaching, and I crafted a I crafted a sermon some years ago on forgiveness, and I remember in that sermon using uh, the the story of uh, Bud Welch, and Bud Welch had a twenty three year old daughter named Julie Marie who was killed in the bomb in the bomb. Yeah, I know Bud, and. Uh, I had read his story and about, you know, him just desperately wanting this death penalty. And like you, he encountered, uh, the family. Now this was Tim McVeigh's, uh, as I remember, it was Tim McVeigh's father and, and brother and sister. Sister. I had. And went to and, and went to but and went to Buffalo. Anyway, it was a power it, like your story, a powerful story. And like your story, but I suspect there's so many that don't go this way. A man who went from clamoring for the death penalty to, to finding forgiveness and realizing it's the only path forward, uh, you know, and realizing here's a family that's equally damaged 
different. Yes. Different for sure. Um, to people that are struggling, or, and, and I'm sure you've had countless of these conversations, to people that are struggling with forgiveness for whatever, and so many of us harbor bitterness and hatred for things much, much more trivial than what you've endured, you say what? Well, that forgiveness is a process. You know, it, Lord, I don't know how to pray. You're going to have to help me. Send your Holy Spirit to intercede for me. Uh, you know, just just what I've told you. That's. I don't think there's a magic wand that you can wave. And it, uh, healing is a process. I can remember after the bombing, I cried so much that if you found a, a, a few hours where you weren't crying, you were thinking, oh, God, it's over. I'm going to be okay now. And then it would just flood over you again. It did for weeks and months. Uh, what I want to tell people, though, it, it's, it, it's, a, it's a process. Turn your heart toward God and ask him to help you with it. And he understands. Uh, God understands. I think God understood Glenn's, uh, the hatred that he harbored in his heart. My son uh, that found the boys after he read my book, Now You See Me, he's a mom. It's a great book. And I'm really glad that you were able to forgive, but please don't ever ask me to do that. Yeah. And I think God understands that too. Well, and that proves how personal it is. I remember in Bud's story, and you'll know, you'll know factually if I've got this right or not. But at the end of their visit, so they go to Buffalo and they see uh, Tim McVeigh's uh, father and sister. And it dawns on Bud, his daughter's name was Julie. It dawns on him that he can get on a stage, he can get on a platform, and he can talk in glowing terms about his daughter. And he made the comment, but, but Tim McVeigh's dad won't ever tell people I had a son. Yeah. And man, that, you know. It's like, oh, there's a, there's a shot to the heart. How, and how did your daughter, how did your daughter cope? Well, I, she's, you know, when people say, how, how are you doing? You know, that we should quit asking that question. I have a whole list of things don't do after somebody's died. Because mm -hmm. when, when you say they come to you after you, after you buried the children, well, how are you doing? Well, I'm doing horrible. Is that what you want to hear? You always have to just kind of suck it up. So uh, the other thing I hated was when people would come and say, well, you know, at least you've got your memories. I wanted to say, I don't care. Right. I don't want memories. I wanted my grandchildren or God, I don't know what this one means. God only takes the best. You know, don't when someone loses somebody and they don't try to fix it with your words. And I was guilty of that before this happened to me because you think you can say things to make them feel better. But when your heart has been removed and, it, and put back in your chest, you can't say anything to fix it. What you need to say is put your arms around and say, I love you and I'm here for you. And you can't possibly understand how I feel. Yeah, the only one in this world that could have understood how I felt was Janie Coverdale. And she lost both of her grandchildren in the bombing as well. And she was the only friend I had during that time that I could go to lunch with. And we would talk about our grandchildren in the past tense. And yeah. Jason Colton and Aaron and Elijah are buried across from each other in the cemetery. And Janie died just a few months ago, and now she's out there with them. Well, I had mentioned earlier, and I know Randy and I both, we consult with people. We, we talk to people. We try and comfort people. And when I tell the, the story about shock, anger, denial, acceptance, and that's, I mean, it, it's in, in that, this community, it's rote. You've heard it a billion times. You can quote it backwards. You, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. What people don't say is that those, number one, they don't always happen in that order. Number two, you don't move out of shock and into anger and say, oh, I'm never going to go back into shock. No, you will be back and forth between anger and shock and denial and acceptance and then right back to shock again. And 
it's it, they're all interconnected so closely. It's not a linear process in any way. Is that fair? Yes, and I think we all handle things differently. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't, you know, that's right. I'm not going to handle it the same way that you do. We all handle it different. Uh, but I can tell you that had I not uh, learned to forgive, I I would have probably gone to my grave with the bitterness and anger. Learning to forgive changed my life. I never thought about speaking to groups of people. I never thought about writing books or doing shows like this. But learning to forgive changed my life, and it changed my story. Did it make you a new person, whether you wanted to or not? It made me a different person. I think I'm a deeper person. (laughs) People who haven't suffered uh, are blessed. They're blessed. But... uh, they don't understand is I think I'm more compassionate. I like, like for instance, used to, I would see, let's say a plane crash on TV. They're covering, they're covering that or, or even the Ukraine war. You, you would see some coverage and you'd think, Oh gee, that's too bad. But as I watched the Ukraine being bombed and the people and they're running from their homes. Uh, I have an empathy for them that I never would have had had I not been in a bombing and seen the bloody people running from the building and watched the, uh, watched the turmoil. But at least I could go home and get in my own bed. You know, the Ukraine has really been heavy on my heart. You know, we all have our stories and we all have needs and it's made me much more compassionate. Let me shift gears, Kathy. How did you end up in the village? Well, seven years after uh, my husband Glenn died, I met and married Tom Sanders and he lived uh, in Little Rock, Arkansas. And uh, we've been married over 20 years now and we moved to Little Rock. And uh, my husband is 82 years old. He is still working, drives to work every single day in Little Rock. Uh, and I, I could, I figured out, you know, you're not ever going to retire. And he goes, no, I like working. I said, well, we're re- I'm retiring. So I said, let's move to the village. And I spent a couple of years looking for a home that fit our needs. And we moved here and he, he almost thanks me daily. That, uh, how, long ago, how long ago was that, that you moved there? Six and a half years, six and a half years. And I, I tell people, you know, I, I'm living on, in heaven on my way to heaven. I, I love the village. I love the people. I, uh, this is my home. Yeah, it's. Uh, I won't go into it because I never have, and I, I probably never will. I didn't suffer anything near what you did, uh, but was going through a, a bit of a rough patch. Came over in 2018 because I just wanted to get in some woods and walk some trails and be in seclusion, and that's how I fell in love with the place. For me, does this resonate for you? It's it's it's. There's something very cathartic about the whole place for me is there for you yeah there there is i mean i'm serious when i say i feel like i'm living in heaven on my way to heaven i am so blessed and you know i've had a lot of tragedy in my life a few um just a couple of years before the bombing uh, i called my dad to see if he could fix my car and he said yeah honey bring it on over and when i got there i found him dead in the floor of a massive heart attack Two years later, my mother strangled in a horrible accident. I lost my grandchildren and I lost my husband. But I'm sitting here today. I'm so blessed. I'm so blessed to be in the village. I've, uh, I have a love and compassion for people. I want to help people. I want them to know, hey, bad things happen, but you've still got a life. I want to tell them, you know, you're down and you're hurt and you're broken. But you will survive. There's life after this. 
And I've got a song in my heart and a smile on my face today, and I, I love it here. Well, there's the mic drop. You, there's the mic drop moment right there. That right? is a mic drop moment. Right, there. I should have shut up and we should have stopped recording right there. I was going to say I lived in Walton Heights over on 430, where you could yeah. look out of, over the river. Yes. Had a stunning view. Uh, you could see 30 miles. You could see over to Fort the Fort uh, the uh, the Armory and whatever. And I would come out here during the. This is the early 2000s. I would come out here and take pictures. And I remember driving home and looking in the windows of people's houses that were watching TV or whatever. And I remember thinking they get to stay here all the time, Yeah, all the time. Yeah. 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 Uh, I remember thinking I, I can't get here quick enough. I yeah. cannot get here quick enough. Yeah. I, you know, we used to travel quite a bit and then the pandemic came and we quit traveling. And it's like, I tell my husband, where would I want to go? That's any better than this. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I wake up, I look at the lake. I love it here. I don't, I, I tell, you know, we've got a million and a half frequent flyer miles and I don't want to go anymore. <laughs> and, and I don't have more, any, I don't have any frequent flyer miles. And if I were there, I wouldn't want to go anywhere. Either. No, no, I don't want to go anywhere. I love, I love it here. Well, Kathy, I tell you what, I, I think we're going to have to come back and visit you again and ask you about tacos and burgers or pizza in a, in a next episode. But for joining us for today, Hot Springs Village Inside Out, I'm Dennis Simpson. She's Kathy Sanders, author and speaker, and he's Randy Cantrell. And we will see you next time. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hot Springs Village Inside Out, a podcast where Hot Springs Village, Arkansas is the star Please subscribe to the podcast. You can do that by visiting our website, hsvinsideout.com, and tell a friend.